It's hard to believe that 1998 was almost 20 years ago. As a matter of fact, there are a few of you that weren't even alive in 1998. That's even harder to believe. Make me feel old. But in 1998, the nation was rocked as it became increasingly obvious that the most powerful man on the face of the planet had used his power and manipulated his power in such a way to take advantage of an intern that worked in his office. Over 1995 and 1996, President Bill Clinton uh, now admittedly had an inappropriate relationship with a person who was not his wife, to which he audaciously protested his innocence, that the charges being leveled against him were nothing but political machinery uh, leveled against him by his political opponents. And after going on national TV to declare his innocence and that he did not indeed have any kind of inappropriate relationship with someone, and even committing perjury under oath, it became clear in 1998 that everything that had been said, every sort of detail, was true. So what do you do when you're caught with your hand in the proverbial cookie jar? You say whatever it takes to make people like you again, and maybe even shed a few tears and pronounce on yourself that you are indeed a repentant man. How do you know? Is it the volume of tears that you shed? Is it the apparent humility by which you speak? How do you judge repentance? It's a tough question. Because you have to ask yourself the very same question, because we live in a day and an age where pseudo-repentance is good enough for me. Half-repentance seems to get the job done. Fake-repentance seems to be enough. And so we have, in our day and age, and listen, it started far longer than 20 years ago. You go back to the garden, and everyone gets blamed except for the person who committed the, oh, it wasn't me, God, it was the woman that you gave me. Oh, it wasn't me, it was that serpent that you created. We always pass the buck, and we have turned repentance into an adult version of Play-Doh that we can shape and mold into whatever form or fashion suits us. And here is my concern this morning, is that repentance, as defined by the Scriptures, is more than simply saying, I'm sorry. Husbands, I hate to break it to you. I'm sorry it doesn't cut it. Sometimes it's empty words. And my concern this morning is that as a people, as a nation, as humankind, we have practiced or we have, we have repented, but we are not repenting. Okay, and I, I need you to hear that. Because this is not just preacher talk wrangling over the tense of a verb. Okay, this is, I think, incredibly important um, that we get this fact down. That we have repented, but we are not a repenting people. And here's where I think this really comes down to something that is so important. The chief, actually, I'll ask a question, okay? Audience participation. The chief accusation against why people don't go to church is what? Because y'all a bunch of hypocrites. If there is anyone that should get repenting down and get it... Listen, 
We'll, we'll let the president slide if he's not a believer. But if there is someone that should get repenting down, it should be us. And there's all kinds of virtues that come with repentance, like humility. Let, let me just assert here on the front end that if you're a really proud person, this is going to be a very difficult sermon for you. It has been for me. Because proud people repent of nothing. There's too much self-righteousness for any of Jesus' righteousness to be thrown into the ingredient mix. And so there's all kinds of virtues that come with repentance, namely humility, that are very good. And so as we seek to understand what the Bible has to say about repentance, the very first thing we have to acknowledge is that repentance is all throughout the Bible. It's everywhere. I think the temptation or the tendency is to think that these Old Testament prophets who thundered, thus saith the Lord, repent or be banished, you know, kicked off the island, whatever. We think that the prophets are the only ones that declared a message of repentance. Now, that would be true. The prophets did speak about repentance, and they spoke about it very forthrightly. This is not in the outline. It's not in your, not in your sermon notes. But Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 3. It says this, Lord, don't your eyes look or search for faithfulness? You have struck them, but they felt no pain. You finished them off, but they refused to accept discipline. They have made their faces harder than rock, and they have refused to return or repent. When your kids are really young, I know we got a, we got a couple of parents of little ones here. Listen, enjoy it, man. This is easy. Um, you got it made. It's easy to discipline your kids when they're really young. I mean, you can get the frowny face, and sometimes the frowny face is enough to enact discipline. What did you do? It works with puppies, and it works with little kids. But there comes a point where you can discipline your kid, and they don't get what discipline is about. Discipline imposed upon someone else is for the purpose of self-discipline so that they don't get disciplined anymore. I mean, it makes sense. Young people don't get it. And there are times in which, just like uh, Jeremiah proclaimed to the people of old, that God would discipline his people to make their hearts soft. And it says that instead of receiving their discipline, they made their faces harder than rock. Defiance. Because they would not repent. They continued even deeper in their rebellion. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32. God says very blatantly, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. This is the declaration of the Lord. Instead, repent and live. The message of repentance is a life-giving message. We, we tend to think that the message of repentance is negative and um, um, not good. But Jesus is saying that this is the avenue towards blessing into life into joy but it's not just in the old testament as a matter of fact as we turn to the pages of the new testament john the baptist the the cousin and forerunner of the lord jesus christ had a preaching ministry that really amounted to one word repent matthew chapter 3 verse 2 in those days john the baptist came preaching in the wilderness of judea and he said 
Repent! Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. He was literally the very first one-hit wonder. He didn't have anything else to say. He didn't want to talk about the election. He didn't want to talk about ethics. He just wanted to talk about repentance. Strangely enough, when we turn the page to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, after Jesus' baptism, he begins to preach, and he preaches a message that sounds strangely familiar. Matthew 4, 17. From then on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. I want you to realize something. If you today profess the name of Jesus Christ, you have an entire book that is given for your instruction. Okay? From the table of contents to the map, it is for your benefit. Do you realize that if you are a non-believer, there is only one word out of all of the 100,000 words that's in this book, there's only one word that applies to you if you are an unbeliever. Repent. You can crochet Bible verses and put them in your bathroom. They don't do you any good because the very first word of the gospel and the only word of the gospel for you is to repent. None, none, this is not a self-help book. None of it helps you if you don't get the very first word of the most important sentence right. Repent. And so it's not by mistake that John the Baptist and Jesus' very first words, the first word of the gospel to them, from them was repent. In Mark chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus begins to um, delegate his preaching ministry to others. He sends his apostles out to preach. Verse 7, it says, uh, oh, where am I? So Jesus summoned the twelve, and he began to send them out in pairs, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. Verse 12, so they went out, and they preached that people should repent. It's not only the first word of the gospel, it's not only a word that we hear frequently in the prophets of the Old Testament, but in Revelation chapter 2, we find that it is almost the very last word in the New Testament. In the letter to the church at Ephesus, the Holy Spirit says this, Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first, otherwise I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. It's all throughout the Scripture. And yet as we look at human need, not just what the Bible's testimony is, but when we look at human need, the need for repentance is universal. Everyone. It's not just the man from a particular political party that I referred to as an opening illustration. It's across the aisle. It doesn't matter what your shade of skin color is. It doesn't matter what you drive. It doesn't matter who your mom or your dad is. The Bible says that all, everyone, every single case, there is no isolated incident in which this truth does not apply, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That includes me, and it includes you. And yet, we do everything we can. It is a multi-million dollar business to convince ourselves that we're okay. And doggone it, people like me. And uh, that's just not the case. The Bible says that we are sinners. And so, guys, listen, this is not... I, I mean this for your blessing and for your good and not for you to go out twiddling your thumbs going, woe is me. That may be part of the cure, but the point is this. It affects everyone. We are all in the same boat. We, 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 
they say that the ground is level at the cross. It's because we all need, we all need Jesus to save us. We're not good on our own. And so here's, here's the best verse that I think illustrates the universal need for repentance. You may not know this, but our country that we love and we appreciate so much is, is not a first idea. It's not original with us. Do you know where we got the idea for our political system? We, we have a flawed but the best political system known to man. It's messed up because we're in it, but it's, it's good. There's freedoms and there's opportunities to pursue things. It's not without its faults. We got all of our ideas from the Greeks and the Romans that lived thousands of years ago. Don't we just think, like, didn't those pe- weren't those people primitive? Weren't they nincompoops? How did they know anything? And so Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, travels to Athens. This is like the Ivy League city of, the, uh, of ancient times. He goes to Athens in Acts chapter 17. And it says that like he, he is tore up because he's there on a missionary journey. And he's tore up because the city of such tremendous reputation, his, his tour guide uh, summary of Athens is it's full of idols. Not, wow, what amazing architecture, what sophisticated people, what advanced philosophy. His summary of the, his entire tour of Athens is it's full of idols. And so he gets the opportunity to preach to the Plato's and the Socrates and the Aristotle's of his time. They invite him to a place called the Areopagus that is kind of an open-aired coliseum where they gather to debate different issues. Paul's not there to debate, he's there to proclaim. And he goes and he's got one shot to preach to the most advanced civilization on the earth that will be a blessing to Uh, our country thousands of years later and here's what he says therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance god now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed and he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead this is his shot to address congress This is his chance to address the UN. And instead of cozying up beside them for political favors, he punches them in the nose. And he says, repentance. And it's not just my opinion. God is going to judge. There is going to come a time where we will pay for our rebellion. So repent. Because the need for repentance is universal. When we look at how we define Repentance. Repentance is joined to many things. I want to begin by saying, by attacking something that I think is the chief most error in understanding repentance. Repentance is not sorrow. You can be sorry for a lot of things. You can be sorry that you hurt somebody. You can be sorry that you got caught and now the gig's up. You can be sorry because it means you're going to lose your job. You can be sorry because you're going to lose your marriage. You can be sorry because you're going to lose your kids. You can be sorry because you're going to lose money. And boy, listen, there are a lot more people that will cry over money lost than God's honor that is robbed from him. Sorrow is not it. I can't tell you how many men over 20 years in the ministry have sat in my office and cried their hearts out about their sin, and yet within weeks they're back at it. They're sorry, a teensy bit. Not sorry enough to turn from it. 
not sorry enough to allow God to work the wonders of repentance in their life. They're sorry. They're not repenting. And we live in such a sensationalistic and emotionally driven age that we think the moment somebody sheds a tear, God has done his work here. Not quite. I don't bake. But I know you better follow the instructions. Let, leave the cookies in too late and you might be able to play Frisbee with them. But if you are baking a, a pie or a cake and you've gone to the hard work of putting all the ingredients in there, they're in there, but you don't allow it to go full term. Nobody's going to want to eat what you made. And we're so willing to call something repentance. Someone may be on the road. Don't stop the journey for them yet. Allow them to get where God is going to. So if repentance is not simply sorrow, sorrow is an important part of it. Guys, we should be sorry for our sins and we should be emotional about our sins, but it's not simply emotionalism. What is repentance? I think we can tie it to three things because the Bible ties it to three things. So, you know, you have a little conflict, husband and wife, and you're trying to figure out if your spouse is repentant or not. How do you know? I think these three things help. Number one, repentance is tied to belief. It is tied to belief. Mark chapter 1, verse 15 says, The time is filled. The kingdom of God, is, has, uh, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe. The good news. Repentance is undefined if it's not defined by the and believe. Acts chapter 20, verse 21 illustrates this again very clearly. Paul says, I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. What is repentance if it doesn't include belief? Self-improvement? Moralism? Humanism? See, you can, if, if the pain is too great or the price is high enough, you can stop sinning a little bit. But even your stopping sinning will be sin because you're doing it for selfish motives. You follow that? Like, that's really hard to understand. Like, you can stop sinning, which sounds really good, but if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, which is not for God but for yourself, then you're doing it for the wrong reason. And so you can practice moral reformation, but that's not the transformation that the Bible speaks of. So if in your repenting, the chief object of your repentance is not God, then your repentance is not biblical repentance. That is extraordinarily important. Um, you have, in your sin, perhaps offended your spouse. But because it is sin, you have also primarily offended God. And so we are good about trying to patch up our relationships, but we don't repent to God. And so if belief, if faith is not a vital component of our repentance, then it is not what the Bible would define as repentance. Because repentance, scripturally defined, is tied to belief. And I love the way uh, Acts 20, 21 talks about it. It says we are talking about repentance to God, toward God, and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, repentance is begun by a turning. A turning. Acts chapter 3, verse 19, 
pictures this for us. The apostles say, therefore, therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The word for repent really is kind of a military term for about face. And here, here is my concern, if I can picture this here a little bit, okay? I want you to picture the face of a clock. And uh, we're going to kind of lay it on the ground here. And I want the back of the sanctuary to be noon, which would mean behind me is six. Here's three. Here's nine. And the idea of repentance is I'm heading towards three o'clock. And God's desire is for me to really make two turns. He wants me to turn away from my sin, but he also wants me to turn to him. Two terms. And they're not identical. They are interrelated, but one may not necessarily imply the other in a logical relationship. My fear is that we, we, we know that the Bible has this message about repentance, and we may not be clear that we're supposed to be changing from 3 o'clock to 9 o'clock, so we change from 3 to 12. We've turned from sin, but what have we not done? Turn to God. So we have aborted our repentance. It's that cake that falls apart because it's not been fully baked. We've substituted a human definition of I now have a cathartic experience. I feel good about myself because I've admitted that I've done something wrong. And that's not a full definition of what biblical repentance is. Yes, you need to turn from your sin, but you need to follow it all the way to turning towards God. And you don't set the agenda for what that looks like. Anybody else here like to be in control? I do. A lot. It's a problem for me. I can't be when it comes to this. God determines the agenda. I have to turn away from my sin and turn to God. Number three, repentance is connected to a fruit bearing. Like a tree bears fruit. Why? Because that's what a fruit tree does. Doesn't have turtles hanging off of it. It's got fruit. So Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. John the Baptist tells his listeners, because they really like his message, man. Man, John's hardcore, man. He's in your face. He's got weird clothes. He lives at, he's, a, he's a real dude, man, living out in the wilderness, eating bugs. And he's like Bear grills of the New Testament. He's out there. And like he's just punching people in the face with this repentance message. And they go, man, John, we really like your message. What do we need to do next? He goes, therefore, Matthew 3, 8, produce fruit consistent with repentance. You're repentant? Okay. Show me. Show me. Man, I hate those words. Because like, I had a math teacher. When I had to do math work, it didn't matter if I got the right answer. I had to show her how I did it. And I wasn't about to tell her. I looked on the person's next to me's paper. That's how I got it. I got no work to show. You want to, you want me to show it? Okay. There it is. But she wants to know that I know how to think to get the answer. Having the answer is not just enough. I've got to show my work. And so your bold declaration, hey, I cried enough last night. I'm repentant. The Bible would say, where's the fruit? Where's the fruit? Haven't you had somebody that, you know, they constantly go back to the same sin and they're like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And then yet again, 
you know. And listen, part of that is human nature. We're not going to be done with this battle ever in our life. But where's the fruit? And listen, it doesn't need to be the best fruit. You know what would be great? Is even if you produce rotten fruit. Because it's fruit. You know, and then we can fertilize and water, and we got something to work with if it's rotten fruit, but it's fruit. Sometimes I think when I see conflicts between husbands and wives, I'm like, he better get it right. Well, you know, <laughs> didn't mean to get so personal, Casey. So uh, <laughs> she got that little beehive. You can see it waving. Adam! I don't know what, what she does. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Something like that. I understand if you have been hurt by somebody that you care for. Okay? But if they are trying to break a habit and you're doing this, what are you saying? That they have to get it 100% right. Do you get anything 100% right? Once you get out of school, no. Like, there's no 100%. You do not get report cards when you graduate from school. So all of you kids that are in school, in long-time school, lots of school, you know what? Your self-esteem is rocked when you get out of school because you don't get a quarterly report card for, like, sitting in your seat all day, not chewing your pencil, you know? Now it's like something else. Like, you have to be a productive citizen. You actually have to work and show up on time and, and get up in the morning without mommy making you breakfast and learning how to wash your clothes. There's, there's, there's issues here that are... Sorry, I don't know where all that came from. <laughs> the point is, when you see someone even doing a good job badly, you need to encourage them. You need to be happy with rotten fruit. Because if you squelch rotten fruit, you may kill the fruit forever. But if you can nourish, if you can make repentance easy, you may make repentance great. It's funny how that works. It's a two-way street. The person who's offended also has to be gracious to the person who's trying to apologize and repent, even though they don't do it right. But the way that you receive their repentance, even if it's just in fits and starts, actually might make their repentance better. Because God designed us to be in relationship. It's a good thing. So it's connected to fruit bearing. So when somebody says their repentance, is their repentance just moral self-improvement or does it have some kind of reference to God? Does it involve a turning? Are they saying, you know what? My desires were for this. My desires were for something else. And they manifest that desire by seeing some fruit at this point. It might just be little bitty fruits. You know, it might be whatever they call them, cherry tomatoes. You know, like, this is a tomato. What is that? That's like a seed. Be happy with the seed. It'll grow into something else. The best definition that I've heard for repentance is this. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of heart, which ushers in a change of action. The Bible doesn't want us to just be robots doing the right thing. They want us to, the Bible wants us to do the right things, but it wants us to do the right things because our hearts have been motivated and our minds have been changed. We have come to believe something different, and that belief is not just some weird intellectual thing it actually has motivated our heart to change our desires so that we do different things repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of heart which ushers in a change of action fourth and finally the 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 point in all of this is that true repentance is not a one-time event but a lifestyle
my wife really enjoys romance novels. Oh, that's not true. Um, I just thought I'd throw that in there. Romance novels, because um, I, I've probably had the opportunity to do 100, maybe 100 weddings. And every, it's great. Weddings are really fun to do, especially for young people, because they are so ignorant. <laughs> They're naive. And, uh, you know, man, listen, we just love each other. And if we can get to that altar, you know, bada boom, bada bing, it's going to be great. You know, we're just going to, we're going to cruise and like, whew, we got it. Like, you need to be married for about a day to figure out that ain't going to work. You know, you don't just need love to get you to the altar. You need love to keep you married. Every day. It's important. And I think sometimes, even in our Christian life, we kind of view this whole, I have repented, but I'm not repenting, like a roller coaster ride. And the Christian life starts at the tallest part of the roller coaster. And if I can just get my repentance in once and for all, it's all downhill from here. It's kind of like saying I got enough love at my, the day of my wedding to like get it done for the rest of the next 50 years. Listen, if that's your approach to marriage, good luck. There's, there's, there's a, a D word that typically is used for those kind of marriages that don't cultivate love. They sure start out fast and furious, but they turn cold to stone really quick, and then you end up divorced because you've not invested in the relationship. And while it is certainly true that there is an initial repentance that, that happens where we turn from our sin, we turn from God, we were an unbeliever, now we're a believer, there is an initial repentance but friends, there is an ongoing, everyday repentance that just says, God, whatever in my life doesn't look like you, I want you to get rid of it. I give you permission. I write a blank check for you to do what must be done. You know how much humility that requires? Say, God, hurt me if you need to. Get it gone. That means you have to take the crown off of your head and put it on his. It requires an incredible humility to say, not only have I repented, but I will be, by the grace of God, a person who is constantly repenting. Two verses that sum this up that I think are really helpful. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. The Bible says this, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. There's a lot of things I love about this verse. The first is this. If I tell you, all right, here's your homework. I want you to go home, and by 6 p.m. today, I want you to be transformed. You got that? How do you do that? I think we read it in English. We go, all right, we got our homework assignment tonight. Be transformed. You know, Michael Bay, special effects, throw it all in there. Woo! How do you do that? The verb is actually in a passive sense. And a better way to translate is allow yourself to be transformed. That sounds a little more doable because it's not me doing it. Who does the transformation? You? No. God does the transformation and you allow it. It happens in a passive tense. Allow yourself to be transformed. It is in a present voice which means it's not a past tense thing. It is a participle. It's ongoing. Allow yourself to continually be transformed. And the verb actually means metamorphosis. A change that is happening. 
And so the end result is, when you are uh, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind, you are different in the end than you were in the beginning. Unless, of course, you're not transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then what does Romans 12, 2 say is the, the result? You're conformed to this world. And the reason that the world thinks that we are hypocrites is with the exception of what we do on Sunday morning, we desire the same stuff that everybody else desires. We spend our money on the same things that everyone else desires. We're all working to get to retirement so we can play and have a boat and a mountain home like everybody else. There is nothing different about us because we're not being transformed. We look just like the world. We just go to church on Sunday. And the Bible says be transformed or you're going to be conformed to this world. And that process is repenting. Saying, God, I think, I think I'm a pretty sharp guy. I think I know which way to go. But instead of me being in charge, let me allow your word. Let me allow you to tell me what I need to do. Romans 12, 2 talks about that. And then, so we, we avoid just a surface application. We go a little bit deeper the way that Jesus would have us to. Philippians 4, 8. This is not surface application. This is deep stuff. He says, you want to repent? You want to know what you need to repent of, what you need to focus on? Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is any praise, Dwell on these things. I have a tendency. If 25 good things happen to me this week, just one teensy-weensy bad thing happens to me this week, which one am I going to remember? Oh, you got that problem too? Anybody else? I kind of like to dwell on what is bad. You know what, because you're church people, you certainly don't gossip, you just pray for people. Oh, did you hear what happened to Johnny, you know? Um, do you focus on what is good or do you focus on what is bad? If you focus on what is bad, there's probably some room for you to repent. If you don't focus on what is good, there's some opportunity for you to repent. A couple questions for you related to this. Do you have an argumentative spirit? I mean, do you really like to get in arguments? And it's not so much that you like the arguments, it's just that you like proving to everyone else how right you are, because you already know it. They just need to figure it out. Do you have an argumentative spirit? That's something to repent of. Do you have a superiority complex? Oh, certainly not me. Those people are the ones with the problem, but not me. Yes, you have a superiority complex. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, my sin's not so bad. You know, at least I haven't killed anybody. It's, it's the axe murderers that are really messed up society. No, because they're locked up. You're the one that's free, and maybe you're a bigger part of the reason why society's messed up than not. Are you a complainer? And I'm not complaining about your complaining. I'm just asking the question. Are you a complainer? Are you negative? Do you gossip? In addition to not having many friends, you're not obeying God. That's just the way that it works. So here's the thing. If I could um, have you go home and look in the mirror or turn to the person sitting next to you, can you, with good conscience, 
in a happy heart. Say, I am a rotten, miserable sinner. Does that assault your self-confidence, your self-image? If it does, that's a good thing. My, my prayer would be that the Holy Spirit would put his foot on the neck of your self-image and choke it out. Because the Bible says that a call to come to Christ is a call to die to self and to live to him. So self-image got to go. It's terrible. Let it go. Because when we are able to acknowledge the miserable, vile, wretched sinners that we are, then the gospel begins to make sense. Why did Jesus have to die if we're not miserable, rotten, terrible, vile sinners? And through that process of believing in him, this miserable, vile sinner that I am now has the opportunity to be resurrected as a saint, washed clean of my sins by the blood of a man whose blood I don't deserve. If we don't get repentance right, we will water down the gospel into something that becomes some form of humanism, moralism, do-goodism. And the Bible doesn't say do good and you'll be saved. It says believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your household. So how you repent sets an example for your kids who are watching you. How are you going to live? How are you going to repent? How are you going to follow the Lord? Because repentance is much more than just saying I'm sorry. Prayer can close. Father, we acknowledge the tremendous need that we have today for humility in our lives. We have um, drunk from the wells of our sophistication and believe that we're all right and you need to be okay with that, God. And yet your message to us is very different. A beautiful creation marred by our rebellion. And it's not something that we can just blame on Adam and Eve. We have participated fully in rebellion against you, not acknowledging your perspective, not honoring you as king, and we have done things our own way. So, Father, for us to even get to the point where we can repent as fully and as deeply as we ought, we need you to bless us with the grace of humility, to confess, to agree with you that um, we are who your Bible says that we are. We're sinners. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the terrible truth that the wages that we earn for our sin is death, separation, judgment. But you loved us enough that even in the midst of our rebellion, you sent your son to die for us, that we might have life in his name. Father, I pray that you help us to never get over the wonder of that. That we prove our devotion to you not by anything that measure, many measure that we have made up, but by the measure that you have put before us of repenting. Not past tense. Today. Right now. So Father, I pray that as your spirit convicts us and uses your word and wields it in our life, that you will help us to repent of our sins today, to trust in you. Some of us, perhaps for the very first time, some of us as an act of discipleship as we continue to follow you and to be purified more and more into your image. Father, I pray that you give us the unction to follow where you lead us in Jesus' name.